go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 14, and we're going to read all the way through verse 10 of chapter 5. We're going to talk today about the great high priest. Now, this is divided up a little bit differently than what you typically see in Scripture because most of the time, themes or different uh, writings begin with a, with a chapter, the way it's broken down. But we see this kind of movement towards articulation of a great high priest began in chapter 4, verse 14. And this is honestly going to carry us all the way through to the end of chapter 10. So the writer of Hebrews really spends a lot of time unpacking this concept of that we have this great high priest. So as we go through this section of about five chapters here, remember that the underlying theme is that we have a great high priest. Now I'm going to throw a thought out at you that I want you to have kind of in the back of your mind as we move through our scripture today and as we go through our message and that thought is this, I don't think we know how to struggle well as Christians. I don't think we know how to struggle well as Christians. Now, let me clarify that statement. I'm not saying that I don't think that we know how to struggle as Christians. I think we know how to struggle, right? Anybody else feel like you've kind of got a doctorate in that area of life? Like, hey, I am the captain of the struggle bus, pal. You don't know what you're talking about. I think we know how to struggle. I just don't think we know how to struggle well as a believer. And that's what I want to kind of examine and pull out of our Scripture today. So Hebrews chapter 4, I want to start with verse 14, reading out of the English Standard Version. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 1 of chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Pray with me, if you would, this morning. 
Father, we just come to you now in your word, and we ask that you open our eyes, open our hearts to what your word has to say to us today, what uh, comfort, uh, what encouragement, what conviction, and what correction that we may need in our hearts today. God, I pray that you would reveal that to each and every one of us. Father, I pray that you would use my voice to allow your Holy Spirit to speak your words through me. Help me to divide it rightly. Be faithful with your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have a great high priest. It's going to be something that we're going to continue to cycle back around to over and over and over again because we see that the author of Hebrews has done a really good job of separating the Son, separating Jesus Christ from some of the more idealistic thoughts that the early church believers, this audience to this letter, would have had because they're falling into unbelief. They're starting to fall away from their faith. And the writer continues to remind them that not only is Jesus the Son of God, not only has he conquered sin and death, not only has he been elevated to the right hand of the Father, through him all things were created, through him all things are sustained. Not only that, but Jesus is greater than angels. He spent chapter 1 and chapter 2 dealing with how Jesus is greater than angels. And in chapter 3, part of chapter 4, he moves on to talking about how Jesus is greater than Moses. So he seems to systematically be pulling down these idle thoughts that the people were falling back into. You know those things in their past, these things in their lives that they once exalted above Christ. They're now falling back to those, and the writer's trying to get their attentions by saying, stop doing that because Jesus is greater. Don't you understand that angels are amazing, but Jesus is greater? We know that Moses was hand-chosen by God to be the deliverer out of Egyptian bondage for the nation of Israel, but he does nothing to compare to the majesty of Jesus. And now the writer goes to the very foundation of what would have been the Jewish belief system at the time, the high priest. But before we get to talking about how Jesus is a greater high priest, because he goes on to talk about what makes Jesus the great high priest, I believe that chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16 really begin to give us insight as to how to struggle well as a believer. And just as, as a show of hands, we all lost an hour's sleep last night, right? I mean, obviously Satan is behind daylight savings time. I mean, I don't think there's a theological debate there. But since we all need to get some involvement here, how many of you will admit that I struggle? In my life, I struggle. So it's a foregone conclusion, right? I mean, we're going to struggle. We're going to suffer. Jesus said so. Jesus suffered. We're not going to escape it. If that's going to be part of my life, which it is, 
It's been part of my past. It's part of my present. And it's going to be part of my future as well. If I cannot escape the struggle, then I want to know how to navigate the struggle as well and as holy and godly as possible. Amen? And that's the desire of my heart. If I can't escape it, then I want God to sanctify it. I want him to set it apart. I want him to use it in my life. And we begin to see this and how this is done in this passage. Verse 14, I think, could be a summation of the whole book of Hebrews. Like if, I think that if the author was forced to say, you have one sentence, one verse, one thought that would summarize all of this letter that you have written, I believe it would be verse 14 when he writes, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. So since that we have this great high priest who has passed through all of these heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, who's defeated death, hell, the grave, came, lived a perfect life, holds the place of the right hand of the Father where he's making intercession. He's an advocate for us on our behalf. His enemies are being made his footstool. Since we have this great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, hold fast to your confession. I believe that's the summation of the book. Since we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, hold fast to your confession. And what's the confession? Simply put, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, we can go all kinds of offshoots and little tributaries and streams off of that statement, and most all of them are going to be correct, but the confession of our heart as a believer as a Christian, as a Christ follower, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And just as with the recipients of this letter, when the author penned it, the same challenge is for us today that since we have this great high priest who has passed through all of the heavens, who has gone through all of these things, who has endured so much on our behalf, Jesus, the Son of God, hold fast to your confession. Now, I don't think that we would be given the charge to hold fast to our confession if we were never going to be tempted or have the opportunity to fall away from that confession. So that establishes in in this book by this author that you are going to face struggles. You are going to face hardships. You're going to face trials. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be pain. There's going to be grief. There's going to be loss. There's going to be financial difficulties. You're going to have relational issues. You're going to endure tough co-workers. You're going to go through things in this life, but what you need to understand is that because you have a great high priest who has conquered all of it, you need to hold fast to that confession that he and he alone is Lord. So that is the summation If you take nothing away from 30 weeks in Hebrews this this year, take that away. Take verse 14 of chapter 4 away. And building on that, we see in verse 15, the author tells us that not only is he the great high priest, not only do we need to hold fast to him, but guess what? He's a personal, relatable Savior. Just as Jessica prayed when she opened us this morning that he is a personal and a relatable Savior. Verse 15 tells us 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus can relate to you. And that should bring a sense of comfort and encouragement to you. This mountain that you're facing, this trial that you're walking through, this valley, as she read about in Psalm 23, this darkness that you're having to navigate through, Jesus knows. And Jesus understands. Your enemy wants you to think that you're the only one who's ever had to navigate anything like this ever before. In the history of all mankind, you are the first. But verse 15 tells us that our high priest is very much aware of what we go through. And he has gone through all of our weaknesses. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our trials. He knows our struggles and our sufferings. And he navigated through all of them. Yet he did not sin. And then verse 16 begins to tell us the real, true, first actionable step because we've been kind of laying a, a theological and understanding and knowledge uh, base as to how we can struggle well as a Christian in this life. Verse 16 gives us our first actionable step on that when it says, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Wow. I mean, how amazing do we see that? You know, I ran across a quote this week, and I could not find anyone to give authorship of it to, but basically it said this, that Jesus died so he could save us, but he lives to keep us. Jesus died to save us, but he lives to keep us. You see, if we were to go through this life with the possibility of navigating it without struggle, we wouldn't need someone to keep us, would we? If we could walk through this life without hardship, without trial, without pain, without sorrow, without grief, without all of these things, if we could navigate our life, then I would not need someone to keep me. I would just need someone to die to save me. And then I could wait until I got to eternity. But Jesus died to save me, and he lives to keep me, because I can't keep myself. Talk about a train wreck. You'll know whenever your pastor has decided that he can keep himself, because my life turns into an absolute train wreck. I mean, even worse than what it already is. But if all we needed was someone to die for us, to save us, then he wouldn't need to be alive now. But you and I, my friends, we need someone to keep us. Praise God for saving us, amen? Praise God for him saving us, but praise him just the same because he keeps us. He holds us fast. Now, this statement in verse 16 I don't think that we can truly understand the weight and the gravity behind this because this would have taken any believer at the time who had Old Testament foundations. They would have been absolutely 
awestruck. They would have been flabbergasted. They could not have fathomed this statement. And that statement that we go back, let us then with confidence, some of your translations may say with boldness, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That was incomprehensible to them. And here's why. Because their history, their foundation, their belief, their tradition growing up was that there was a day called the Day of Atonement. And there was a place basically where the, the presence of God dwelt, in the Holy of Holies, in that holy place. And there was one day, once a year, there was one guy from one tribe, from one nation, that was responsible for going into that presence. And he didn't go boldly. He didn't go confidently. You cannot find a more exclusive system than this. Okay, out of the whole world, there's going to be one dude, and we really hope you make it. Because sin can't enter into the presence of God. And they would tie bells around them. They would tie a rope around their waist just in case. Just in case. You know, the dude fell dead. Which tells me that it's happened before. And like the second or third guy's like, hey, can I get a bell or something? Like, and I'm just going to be in there just ringing the fire. I'm still alive. But this would have been so totally off the grid of their understanding because you hoped that that person, that high priest, came back out. And the atonement for him spreading the blood of the sacrifice onto the mercy seat, you hoped that was good, and then he came back out alive. But now you've got this writer because of this Savior, because of this man, Jesus, this Son of God, who now says that, listen, you can go confidently. You can go boldly into the throne of grace. Yeah, I'm not for, so for sure about that. I think I'll take like number three or number four in this line and see how that works out. But we see this invitation to come. And it tells us that we come to His throne of grace when we need help. When it's in our time of need. Maybe let me put a couple different words in there. We come into His throne. Come to His throne of grace confidently, boldly, in our time of struggle. In the time that we're defeated. In the time when life has knocked us down. In the time when we feel like we're walking in darkness, when it feels like daylight has been years in our past and we don't see daylight for years in our future, that's when we can go confidently. That's when we can go boldly because it's in our time of need that the writer of Hebrews says, Come to his throne of grace, come with your struggles. Come with your hardships. Come with your trials. Come with your tribulation. Come with your faults. Come with your failures. Come with your past. Come with your history. Whatever's going on in your life, now is the time to approach confidently the throne of grace. Because Jesus says, my blood has already paid the price for that. You see, with boldness, 
and with confidence, we're not walking in there like, you know, chest puffed out. You know, that, that cat gift that's... I can tell my gift people in here. Okay. So, that's not how it is. We come confidently and we come boldly, not because of anything we've done. Not because we've got stuff together. Not because we feel like we got our life figured out or because everything's fallen into place. No, we come because we keep our focus on Jesus. Because we say, it's because of His sacrifice. It's because of His life that I can come. It's because of Him. That's the boldness. My confidence is not in me. My confidence is not in my righteousness. It's not in my holiness. It's not in my goodness. But my confidence is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And that's why we can go confidently and boldly. So let's, let's look at this, because we've got the next section here of the high priest, chapter 5. Starts with the qualifications. He's building, the writer's building here as to why Jesus is the great high priest. Very quickly, verse 1 of chapter 5 gives us the first qualification of the high priest, that he's chosen among men. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on their behalf. Verse 2 gives us the next qualifier, that the high priest is to be gentle in dealing. You can see here, he can deal gently with the ignorant. <laughs> I love how that verse is translated right there. I feel like if there's a picture Bible anywhere, my picture's right there going. <laughs> he can deal gently with that. And wayward since himself, since he is, himself has been set with weakness. So he deals gently with the people that he's shepherding, that he's helping to lead, that he's interceding for. This is the qualification. God says he has to be gentle with them because he understands through his own faults and failures and his own experiences. And then we skip, we want to skip a verse here, and we're going to go to verse 4, and we're going to see the last qualification, which says that, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So, I mean, here we've got in the first, you know, four scriptures, chosen among men, okay, all kinds of flaws, flaws and failures. He's gentle because of his experience, and then the, high, the, the priest is called by God. But then verse 3 introduces this concept to us that separates Jesus. Instead of just being a high priest, Jesus is the great high priest. And we find out why in verse 3 when it says, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice. Now, this is still talking about the earthly priest. He is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. That's what set Jesus apart. Every earthly high priest in the history of mankind sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And when we turn back to 4.15, we see that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Can you all say those three words with me this morning? Yet without sin. That's what separates our Savior. That's what makes him the great high priest. Then we move on to verse 8. And I know I'm going kind of quickly here, but I want, to, I want to get us somewhere showing how this is all tying together. Verse 8 reads, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This, again, goes back to 4.15, that he understands what we go through. He suffered. 
He struggled. He was tried. He was tempted. He felt pain, loss, grief, anger, sadness, all of these things. It's because of what he suffered. This is why he's our great high priest. Yet he did it without sin. Then verse 9 shows us the result of that. And being made perfect, it's talking about his obedience there. Okay, just a little caveat there. His obedience was made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So the result of this great high priest being perfect, living sinless, knowing and going through and encountering the hurts, the struggles, the sufferings of this world is that not only is he seated at the, high, you know, at the right hand of the Father, the great high priest, but he is now our source of salvation, the only source of salvation. He is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father except through Jesus Christ. Amen? That's, that's an unpopular message right now. But that's the true biblical message. That it's salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. And if you ever wonder if we're living in a time that's exclusive and unique to truth being resisted, remind yourself that the truth was nailed on the cross. The truth offended so many people on such a deep level and so vehemently that they decided they needed to kill an innocent man who is truth. Now, let's talk about some application. So this has built this case of Jesus knows our struggles, knows what we go through, and has built this case as to why this is why he is the great high priest far above and beyond any other high priest that's ever even Aaron in the whole Levitical line of priests there's no one that comes close to this guy and that tells us how to struggle well are you sure about that pastor yeah yeah I'm pretty sure about it let, let, let's go let's go here so let's think about what what happens how do we struggle well as a Christian we struggle well and suffer well in our relationship with God. Well, the first thing that we need to do, what we need to make sure is that we do, that we remain in Him. We remain in Him and we focus on Him. That we continually lift Him up. We draw near to Him. We remain in Him and we allow Him to do our work in our lives, even in the midst of our struggle. Well, that raises another question, doesn't it? How do we do that? I'm glad you asked. I've got three things. It's incredible how you ask these correct questions. So how do we do this? Well, first thing we need to do is we need to be willing to not despise God's correction. Do not despise God's correction. Let me, let me word it this way. Do not despise God's healing slash corrective touch. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged. Somebody, somebody took my sword away, by the way. You want to talk about suffering through the week? They didn't think I could be trusted with the sword. I'm fine with that. Okay, I'm past it. It's over. 
But the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It separates the bone from the marrow. It separates the soul from the spirit. And what does it do? It discerns what's going on. It discerns the intentions and the motives of our heart. Do not despise the healing yet corrective Word of God. John 15, we see this beautiful image of when Jesus is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane to be betrayed hours before his death. He stops in a vineyard, and he begins to teach the disciples this lesson of God is the vine dresser. I am the vine, you are the branches. And in one of the parts of it, he goes, because that sounds good, right? Like, I'm connected to the vine, and that vine is Jesus. That's great. And then Jesus says, in order for you to produce the fruit that I want you to produce, you're going to have to be pruned. You had me until there, Jesus. You had me till right at that moment. But he says, in order to produce the best fruit, the fruit that I have destined for your life, the fruit that I'm calling you to, there has to be moments of correction. There has to be moments of, of this pruning, this pruning back. But don't worry, it's going to heal you more than it harms you. So we do not need to despise his his corrective and healing word. The second thing that we need to make sure that we're doing is that we're not viewing Jesus Christ as a supplement. I, I, I was tempted to make the, the statement that Jesus can't be a supplement to your life. And I believe that's an accurate statement, but I think it needs to be worded a little bit more strongly. Jesus will not be a supplement to all the other areas of your life. He just won't. He wants everything. He wants your life. He wants your heart. He wants everything that you are. He doesn't want, his, want you to say that, hey, okay, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to live my life and I'm going to sprinkle in Jesus just as much as I can in all the areas that I can. No, if Jesus isn't the primary focus, then you're walking in idolatry and you're in unbelief and you are not holding fast to that confession of your faith, that, faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all of your hearts, and in all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. Notice that word, all. In all your ways, in all your areas, in all your endeavors, in everything that you have, acknowledge him. Do we have any WWE fans in the house? Oh, come on, it's, it's nothing to be truly ashamed about. I mean, all right, well, there's two of us. Anyhow, there went that illustration right out the window. To acknowledge him means to place him above everything else, far above everything else. Acknowledge him in all that you do, and he'll make your path straight. How challenging is that for us? Like, how challenging is that for us to not just view Jesus as a supplement? And lastly, according to the Scripture, then we need to make sure, this is 4.16 again, let me read it, just to make sure we're there. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We need to approach His throne of grace with boldness, with confidence, when we are in our time of need. James 4, 8 tells us that if we'll draw near to him, he draws near to us. 
approach him with confidence. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to close with this. The phrasing that finishes verse 16 of help in your time of need. In the original Greek language, the kind of the same thing in our vernacular, a little colloquialism. Thank you, Thomas. There's my word of the day. That's one of his favorite words, colloquialism. I can't say it near as cool as what he does in that Northern Irish accent thing. But it means the same thing as if we were to say, just in the nick of time. Just in the nick of time. So see, in that moment of struggle, in that time of help, when you need him the most, you can approach him in his throne of grace just in the nick of time. It doesn't mean, listen church, if you haven't heard anything else I've said to you, hear this this morning. It doesn't matter how big of a mess your life is in. It doesn't matter how much that you're struggling with. It doesn't matter how far down the rabbit hole you've fallen. It doesn't matter how dark the night is. It doesn't matter how bad you've been, the horrible things you've done. It doesn't matter about any of these things. You're never going to be able to wash yourself clean enough to walk into the presence of God on your own qualifications. You're never going to be good enough. But the Scripture is telling us right here, even in the midst of your worst struggle, even in the midst of your worst hurt, even in the midst of your worst failure, just in the nick of time, when you feel like all hope has been gone, all you are surrounded by hopelessness, you're given up, you have surrendered yourself to what's happening, God says that it's at that time, just in the nick of time, that you approach my throne of grace. And for so many of us in here this morning, that should be something that just makes our insides just turn and do flips because we're in that dark season, aren't we? We're in that moment of struggle, aren't we? We're suffering maybe in a way we've never suffered. We're experiencing pain in a way we've never experienced it before. And God's saying, you're never too far gone. You're never too far away. You can still just in the nick of time Approach my throne of grace with confidence. Praise God for that this morning. I want to ask the praise team if they would to come back up. What area in your life are you struggling with today? What's going on in your heart, in your life, in your family that's really just got you on the, just struggling? It's got you in the midst of suffering and maybe in a way that you've never experienced it before. But then I think the even more important question than that is, what are you struggling with that you are convinced should keep you away from God? Because if you're here and you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, sorry, my friends, you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to get yourself clean enough. You're never going to be able to whitewash the exterior enough. You're, you're never going to be able to stop cussing. You're never going to be able to lay down a bad habit. You're never going to be able to lay down a bad attitude enough to say, okay, now I can come to Jesus. Guess what? You can come to Jesus right now just as you are. If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what is it? What is that struggle? What is that area that the enemy has convinced you, that has disqualified you from being able to confidently approach his throne of grace? 
Whatever it is, I don't know what it is, but if there's a lie that the enemy is telling you that is keeping you, it may be the most real struggle you've ever been, but if you've been convinced that it should keep you away from God's throne of grace, that is a lie straight from the pits of hell, and you need to toss it out of your life. Because nothing can separate you from the love of God. 